0: Hello, this is Dr. Rob Waller on the Mind & Soul podcast. This episode is about burnout and developing personal resilience, particularly among those who care for the mental health of others. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, this is the um, closing straight, whatever the... I can't even get my words out. There we go. Home straight. That's the phrase I'm looking for. It's the home straight. So yeah, it has been a long day, but it's been a good day, hasn't it? But... I think one of the things that you sometimes miss out on when you come to conferences is some, is some me time. So we're gonna we're gonna try and have a little bit of you time now, if that makes sense. Um, good news from my point of view is I have done this seminar before, although it was with a bunch of psychiatrists. You'll be pleased to know it's just as bad as giving themselves some me time as probably you guys are. Um, everyone who cares for other people tends to sort of overdo it slightly on the on the caring front. So we're going to be talking about filling the tank and and burnout and. It's a really difficult thing to talk about, isn't it? Because again, it's one of those sort of very intuitive phrases that doesn't necessarily translate that easily into something that's actually real. You know, what is burnout? If we're not careful, we say, oh, I'm tired. You know, is that burnout? What does it mean? So, I mean, just to sort of, let's start off active because this is the, you've got your cake in your belly, keep those blood up near your brain and keep circulating around there. Who wants to sort of just shout out. I'm not going to pass the mic around. What's the definition of burnout? Just shout something out. Not being able to get up and face another day. So, yeah, you know, that sort of not being able to get up and face another day. Yep. Not caring about things that you know you've always given. Yep, not caring. You've lost the, the compassion somehow. Yep, anything else? Nothing to Sorry, just this side? There's nothing more to give. Nothing more to give. You're empty. The, the tank is empty. Yep. Same. Nothing more to give on this side. Good. Okay. They've given it already. <laughs> good. Okay. Um, so, you know, we're not, we're not very good at this, are we, in, in, in the caring professions? One of the things I sometimes think is, um, please can I have some help with burnout? Please can I have some help with, with tiredness? Um, just pop the next slide up there. I don't know if any of you have seen this poster up on the staff room wall. Um, this is the um, stress reduction kit. Phil, can we just put the next slide up? Um, this is the sort of quick, easy. This is cheap because it comes out of the photocopier. This is the, the, the stress reduction kit. Bang head here. Now, you probably can't hear the, um, see, read the small print there. Place on firm surface. Follow directions in circle. Repeat step two as necessary or until unconscious. If unconscious, cease stress reduction activity. And it, it's partly funny, and you see these things stuck up on the common room wall at school and things like that, don't you? But I, th- I think it, it taps into a sort of deeper reality, which is that you've only got two speeds. It's like nine billion miles an hour, all that's unconscious. And humans are not designed to move at 100 miles an hour or zero. You know, Somebody once said to me they're meant to move at the speed of love, which is walking pace, so you can hold someone's hand. You know, we're, meant to, we're meant to have that middle speed. And there's going to be times when you need to do 100 miles an hour. There's going to be times when you need to do absolutely nothing. I love going away to a cottage in the cottage in the Scottish Highlands with absolutely no phone signal. Ideally, no one's put Wi-Fi into it yet. And nothing can get to me for a week and a half. I'm not very good at these staycations. I keep checking my email and that sort of thing. But if I actually go away overseas, never sign up to a data plan. I have no intention of accessing my mobile phone overseas. Um, apart from here, because I'm working. Um, but... But, you know, just get away. You need the zero. You need the 100 miles an hour. But how do we do that middle? And if we don't, there's a few sort of um, phrases that that tend to get bounced around. I suppose one of them is what you might call burnout or compassion fatigue. Is is compassion fatigue the same thing as burnout? We'll we'll come on to that. Leading for the long haul in difficult situations. This, This is difficult work. This is dealing every day with people who are suicidal, possibly psychotic, I know you do at least one of those. I do both of those things. This is, this is difficult work. What are my personal strategies? I'm going to share a little bit of that. So it'll be a bit of a me giving something as well, this seminar. And also what we're going to do is we're going to end up and develop our own personal resilience plan, which sounds very grand, but basically it's only as good as a bit of paper you write it on. So we can develop it but you have to implement it. Otherwise, it is just yet another PDP that gets filed in your folder, isn't it? So we're gonna try and come up with some really practical stuff. Now, it is an uphill battle. Got the next slide there, Phil. Um, This is just a picture of of Carl Jung. Show me a sane man, and I will cure him for you. So there is a sense that to do this kind of work, you have to have your sort of legs hanging off by the kneecaps a little bit, don't you? And um, there are, strategies that we use that are sometimes not that helpful a bit of black humor creeps in from time to time but we have to also be realistic and say do you know what in order to do this kind of work you, you you perhaps do have to be doing some of those things but again that's not that's not healthy it's okay from time to time but it's it's not a healthy coping mechanism so so what are healthy coping mechanisms and also just thinking about about burnout Phil. just the next slide there um maslach who was the um psychologist who's written most on burnout, he came up with the sort of burnout inventory and things like this. He, he said it's these three things. <coughs> so we could come up with a trite definition or something like bouncing back like we had for resilience or some of the things you said which are, which are very good but I think we need to be more focused about it because otherwise it becomes too broad, everything's included. And what we're talking about here is three, three core things. One of them is depersonalization which is this idea that you're there but not there, that you're sort of talking to a ghost or um, that you're feeling as though you're real but the world is a stage set or that the world is real but you're somehow sort of walking through it and you could somehow sort of walk towards that door through those chairs you know there's some sort of detachment from reality there's something somatic anxiety based going on in your body emotional exhaustion you know that the tank is empty there's nothing left to give and also this other thing about reduced personal accomplishment you know you're not enjoying the things that you used to enjoy you're not able to gain pleasure from things that you know do know do you know what i i used to go on a holiday come back feel refreshed i don't anymore I used to enjoy Monday mornings, and that's why I went into this work. Now I dread Monday mornings. You know, it's those kinds of things where you're missing out increasingly on on more and more. So what I'm gonna do, because we're gonna be practical, I'm gonna hand out something called the Burnout Questionnaire. Now, this sounds very grand. There is nothing special about it. It's just a list of burnout symptoms, and you're meant to score them, okay? So it comes with special instructions, a bit like the Stress Reduction Kit. Keep it the right way up, Don't turn it over, okay? Fill it out, score each item one to five according to how much you think it applies to you. One is never or no change. Five is always or much change. It's got a little crib at the top. And just tot it up. So the maximum you can get, there's almost 30 things and there's five points. So the maximum you can get is 150, is that right? 180, no, 150. I was right first time. Maximum you can get is 150. So we're, we're going to sort of... Over the on the other side is the answers, all right? But don't don't look at that yet. So I'm just going to hand this out, and Phil's got some nice music for us while you fill it in. Okay. So if you haven't quite totted up your score yet, you can tot it up later. I thought this was quite an interesting questionnaire because it, it, it seems to cover quite a lot of areas, doesn't it? So it, it's talking about sort of, you know, how are you getting on in your job... What about you, your, yourself, how are you, how are you managing with your energy levels? There's, there's a few there. I mean, Four question four was one that, that, that jumped out at me as sort of, you know, that even, even when you're asleep, you're still waking up tired, if that makes sense. Now, I think we've probably all been there, but it's when you get these things with the other ones. I won't ask too many ones about question nine, um, particularly those of us with young children. Um, Fifteen... I've been living in a country with a fantastic supply of Pinot Noir. And it's, it's very tempting, because it's cheap, isn't it? And it's socially acceptable. And it's one of the ways that we can mask things. And I think particularly, particularly men, or there's been lots of articles in the newspapers, haven't there, about you know middle-class drinkers, you know, you're not an alcoholic on the cheap lager, it's, 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 it's the Save Blanc or the, the Pinot or something. And I guess the, one of the ideas around Burnout is that it's a sort of pre-breakdown. Isn't it? So, imagine you're driving along the motorway, the car hasn't broken down yet, but you're starting to get that sort of hot smell that either suggests the cat has come with you or that the car is starting to complain, Okay, neither of which are good situations. But um, you, know, you need to do something about this now because the next thing that's going to happen is the car's going to break down and it's going to say, I'm pulling over onto the hard shoulder onto the side of the road and I'm not going anywhere until something's fixed. Burnouts before that, we can fix burnout. Um, you're obviously not allowed to answer yes to question 24 anymore, given the government's recent funding announcements, and that's good. However, I won't say anything about 22 and a few other things that relate to your job, because one of your bosses is sitting in the front row. So. Um, but, but, you know, I mean, there are jobs... That, I'm joking, because there are jobs that we do because we want to do them. I mean, I'm particularly fortunate I get paid well to do my job, but not everyone gets paid well to do important jobs. And that's OK for a while... But it does have its toll, and that's why these things add up. So you can turn over and see where you're scored. I'm not going to ask anyone for their scores. Some of you might be in this sort of first sort of bracket, 28 to 38. You are impressively mellow with almost no job stress and seemingly practically burnout proof. You are one of those people who wears their pants on the outside, aren't you? And that's what my friend Will found before he was involved in the London bombings that I was talking a bit about earlier. The first seminar I was in, the guy I wrote the books with. He was this sort of super pastor, young guy, fresh out of theological college, you know, working in central London with young adults. You know, doing stuff every evening, all this kind of stuff. And, you know, this idea that actually it's the calm before the storm, isn't it? So those of you who scored very low might want to think, hang on am I kidding myself? Perhaps I ought to get my spouse to score me on this. That's usually quite a good technique. If you're scoring in single figures, ask someone who knows you well. 38 to 50, you express a low amount of job stress. That's good. I think that's kind of a good place to be. 51 to 70, a moderate amount of job stress. Again, it's okay. That's all right. That's fine to be there from, from time to time. Uh, for periods of time, there will be times where there's an awful situation happens, and everyone's got to rally round. and that, that's okay. It's, I think what we're getting there is we're getting into the territory where prolonged periods of time in that are going to begin using up favors. You know, you've got your jar of cookies on the countertop, and you've gone to the cookie jar one too many times, and there are no cookies left. You've used up favors. You've asked your mate for a help with the rent one too many times, etc., etc. You've used up the cookies in the jar. And then 91 and up, a dangerous amount of stress. Thus, does say the solution is consider taking classes in stress reduction. Um, I think probably you also need to make some environmental changes at that sort of level as well. Now, the key thing about this is don't panic about a high score, because it doesn't mean that you're depressed or broken or something like that, but don't ignore a high score. Do something about it, make some changes, try and get it down into that middle range. People will vary in their resilience. Some people will be better at certain situations. Some people thrive on a bit of pressure, and that's okay as long as your adrenal glands are not going to pack out because there's just so much adrenaline's pumping out of them. So people will differ. Some people will find some situations difficult, other situations less difficult. Now, one of the reasons why it's good to do a seminar like this is because it's good to spend some time in self-care. But this is something that's been in the press and the news quite a lot recently. Lots of different organisations have sort of produced a report on burnout amongst physiotherapists or against something, you know, lots of reports have come out and everyone seems to have a report on it. I couldn't find a report about burnout in Chaplains, so I'm going to show you the psychiatrist's one. Actually, it's not the psychiatrist's one. This is is all consultants in New Zealand, so um, on on the next slide there, 50% of New Zealand senior medical officers have symptoms of burnout, not the same as burnout. I mean, personally, I'd hope that more than 50% had symptoms of burnout. Otherwise, they're not alive, are they? But, you know, there are a lot of symptoms of burnout. 50% of them are experiencing some degree of stress. 42% work related, 16% patient related. So, although we all have difficult clients or difficult patients, it's actually the the general environments of the job that are are contributing, or or the home environment or something like that. It's not necessarily the particularly difficult person. They might keep you awake at night for a short period, but clients come and go. They they go through periods. It, it's the sustained pressure that's difficult. Um, so this is a report from ASMS, who are the, the medical union basically in, in New Zealand and they're talking about the New Zealand workforce there. And they're saying it's higher than comparable international service of other health workers, whatever whatever that means. Next slide. Psychiatrists in their report score up here in the top right corner. So you want to be in the bottom left. No one's in the bottom left. G- GPs, actually, which I thought was quite a stressful job, um, seem to be doing okay. Emergency medicine up there is very stressful. Um, hidden under the blue square is pathology. So given that their patients are dead, um, they don't get an awful lot of patient stress, but they obviously do get quite a lot of job stress. That makes sense. So there's it's quite surprising sort of things in there. So, you know, this particular survey is putting psychiatry sort of higher up. And I guess I guess it is stressful, but I, I, there's quite a well, well-trodden well path, people who come out of medical school, train as GPs, and then go into psychiatry. And one of the reasons why they go into psychiatry is they want more time to deal with the people who are challenging and complex. Um, so I actually think psychiatry is more stressful, but it's got the resources to, to deal with it. So... I have time and support and skills and training and structures and policies and whatnot to deal with extremely difficult situations. Um, my surgical colleagues who just want to get on and do operations, and they've got lots of people with chronic pain and somatization that is not going to respond to the knife. They're the ones who are being asked to do something they're not equipped to do. So I think as long as you're equipped to do it, you can do difficult things. On the next slide, this is just a different survey, just to show that it's all lies and statistics, really. Um, This is where psychiatrists rate on a different survey. So Medscape is one of the big sort of doctor's online forums, and here psychiatry and mental health are are scoring down the bottom with only pathologists faring better. Again, emergency, emergency medicine seems to be high up, high up there. Family medicine, OBGYN, things that have shifts, shift patterns, lots of out of hours, emergency work. Um, being being more challenging. So I'd like to get into small groups and just turn to the person next to you and don't don't get personal. We're not going to get personal here unless you want to. Um, but why do those who care for others struggle with with burnout? Just turn around, discuss to the person next to you. You know why is it a particular curse? If that makes sense, um, accountants never get burnout, do they? Um, why do the caring profession seem to struggle with burnout, and are chaplains better or worse than other caring groups that you know? I get feedback on all the small group sessions. I'm just going to go on and um, tell you what the consultants in New Zealand said, so pop the next slide up if we can, Phil. This, this is what the um, ASM survey said as were the causes for burnout. Heavy workloads. Increasing population in New Zealand, particularly around Auckland, no extra doctors. Um, long hours of work meant to be 40, 45 hours a week, but in practice, much more than that. Shift work and on-call duties. Understaffing leading to presenteeism, you know, covering for colleagues when perhaps, actually, the waiting list ought to go up. Um, You know, and I think there's this overcompensating and, you know, not being able to take a day off. Um, Poor quality leadership. Um, Doctors are not necessarily leaders and... (laughs) It's quite a difficult job running a health board because you've got nurses and doctors who went into it for one reason and then end up becoming the leaders. And, you know, the leadership of health organisations is not always fantastic. It can be fantastic, but it can be not very good. Medium-sized DHBs, district health boards, what, what they mean by that is, you know, the small ones, everyone expects are not very good service. Rural areas, people expect to a certain extent are not very good service. The big cities, you expect it to be sharp, but you've got the resources. The medium ones, they kind of struggle because they've got this expectation burden they can't meet. Females more than males, and the worst age group is 30 to 39, so I'm happily just beyond that now. I know most of you are still in that age group, so that's okay. Why is it important to deal with, with, with burnout? I mean, this is one of the things that's coming out of the, the, the research now. And I think one of them is, um, Phil, just the next slide if we can, um, just that it's, it's bad for your well-being. It's not good for you. It, it's a precursor to, to depression. Um, it's bad for your physical health particularly if you're drinking too much or not exercising and you know there's there's never enough time. One of the things I've learned is that if I'm gonna stay fit, it has to be as part of my daily routine. So I cycle to and fro to work, otherwise it just doesn't happen. When I'm home, I wanna be doing stuff with the kids. I'm not gonna spend all Saturday charging up mountains when I wanna be doing stuff with the family, you know. So so I've got to build it into my day or else it it just doesn't happen. That lunchtime swim on a Thursday, that sounds a good idea. Really just not gonna happen. There's always something or someone knocking on your door. Um, It's bad for your clients as well. So in association with decreased quality of care and also also making errors, you make mistakes. In particular, medical errors, I suppose I'm particularly aware of, all of the medical defence organisations run training in stress management and burnout. And it's not because they like you, it's because it's expensive for them, because doctors make mistakes and the defence organisations end up paying out to settle the claim. Yep, exactly. So, Lady just saying that it impacts the ethical credibility. You know, if you're tired, worn out, unprofessional, etc., it doesn't, doesn't come across particularly, particularly well, or if you're making mistakes. Yep. There's a couple of more concerning situations I'm just going to flag. I'm not going to sort of talk about these in any great detail. If you're, um, one of those is what you might call compulsive caring. And this is where, literally, your whole identity is too wrapped up in what you do. You can't take a holiday. You can't retire, or if you do retire, you drop dead the day after you retire because you have no concept of what not working looks like. It's a pattern of caring rather than feeling, and it serves your own emotional ends. I mean, a related thing that you might be familiar with is people with um, anorexia nervosa are often very good cooks and spend a lot of time preparing food for other people, just not for themselves. It's this sort of, I can care for everybody else as an alternative to caring for me, because the moment I open the lid, I don't know what I'm going to find inside, so I'm just going to externalise everything and, and put it out there. Um, you could say it's rooted in childhood learning. You know, we're, we're told that um, you know you mustn't make mummy sad or don't do that; mummy gets stressed. You know, so we keep the emotions repressed and settled down. Um, I think Christians get a bad press here because um, the stakes are high, aren't they? And that doesn't mean that your fillet's hanging from the roof. What that means is that there is no plan B. And I'm sure you've all heard that sermon, there is no plan B. It's just 12 apostles and Jesus got 12 apostles and they are people who stand in their shadows. There ain't no plan B. It's up to the church to save the world. Okay, Huge expectations, you know, if you're not. And then these verses from Isaiah where it says, spend yourself on behalf of the needy. And Christians are particularly bad at sort of overcommitting. I'm always like that verse in the Bible that says, The Lord desires living sacrifices, not burnt offerings. Okay. So that's the antidote verse. We still want our sacrifices to be alive. Not crawling off the altar. That is sometimes the problem. But we want living sacrifices in the kingdom of God, not burnt offerings. Okay. And compulsive caring at its heart is a form of OCD. OCD, obsessions and compulsions, to take away from... Deep, scary fears about people you love coming to harm or yourself coming to harm. That, that, that's at the heart of OCD, and it can be treated as OCD if it's formulated as such. It's a pattern people get into. The other one is, is compassion fatigue, which I suppose is a sort of more severe form of, of burnout. Um, this is where it begins to get more personal. You're now you're not just involved in the job, and the, it's not the job stress or the family stress and the circumstantial factors causing burnout. It's it's the individual cases are now starting to get to you. And you're involved in the trauma. You're experiencing the emotions of those you care for. You start blaming. You start self-isolating. You start having nightmares and flashbacks. And we all know, you all know from your basic listening and training that one of the things you're meant to do in counter-transference and working with people is you're meant to say, hang on, why am I feeling this emotion? Why am I feeling confused and lost in this situation? Maybe I'm not confused and lost. Maybe I'm experiencing what the person in front of me is feeling. You've all been taught that. And that's called the counter-transference, it's one of the core skills of counselling and listening. But you need to be able to stand back and you need to know yourself and you need to be getting your own supervision and so on to be able to spot that, if that's what's going on. Otherwise you really do feel lost and alone and frightened and confused and so on and you get into compassion fatigue. So it's good that we're paying attention to this. This is, um, on the next slide, a, a new line in the Hippocratic Oath that um, uh, a New Zealand doctor has decided to put in. Phil, can you pop the next slide up for us, please? Oh, he's in the middle of something. In a moment will appear a new slide for the Hippocratic Oath, and it says, I will attend to my own health and well-being and abilities in order to provide care of the high standard. And this guy, Sam Hazeldine, is a New Zealand doctor, and he's reading through the Hippocratic Oath, and he thought it sounded absolutely wonderful, but there wasn't a line in there for the doctors. So he commissioned the World Health Organization and has managed to get this line added to the official Hippocratic Oath. And I think it's quite important because actually doctors are are pretty good, pretty bad at looking after themselves, aren't they? There's there's quite a peak in mortality after retirement for doctors. They're not very good at retiring. They don't know what to do with themselves when they retire. They're so used to being the boss or the consultant, whatever it is, they don't actually know how to step into another role in life. And doctors have a higher suicide rate compared to other members of the population, that kind of thing. So doctors are not very good at caring for themselves. And um, I'm hoping chaplains are, are, are slightly better because they'll actually have sessions like this. Although having said that, the first time I did this talk was to a bunch of psychiatrists. And it was like, wow, okay. We, we need to be getting this into some of our, our agendas as well because we're not, we're not bulletproof. Okay. Yeah. Right, okay, yeah. So the, the teaching equivalent to the Hippocratic Oath doesn't have anything in it. And, and it wouldn't surprise me. It's all obligation. Obligation, obligation. Thou shalt do this and keep the needs of the child central. And, you know, I mean, one of the things that I was taught by my last trainer I worked with before I became a consultant, was he said, he said, when, when you go to work on Monday morning, go primarily for yourself. Go for yourself to be a better person and to be as good and healthy a person as you can do. If you do that... You will be a better boss and a better team member, and if you do that, then you'll be a better doctor for your patients. So if you want, if you go, if you go to work to help your patients, you're kind of two levels wrong. You've got to go to work to help yourself first of all, if that makes sense, and then help your team, and then that will help those around you. Okay, and um, you know Richard Branson and other people in the business world have said this. It says you know, work with you. You know Virgin are very good at this. You know, happy team members equals happy customer. And that, that sort of starts off with, with "happy you." Um, do you have a rewards program, an incentives program? I'm, I'm joking, because I know full well that most care organizations don't have a rewards program or an incentives program. There's a, there's a friend of mine who um, she was at a lodger for a while while she was studying for her master's, and she's got a master's in HR and she 's now working for one of the big banks in their rewards department. I had no idea what a rewards department was, and it 's the bit that deals with all the bonus and the staff perks and all this kind of stuff and the nhs don 't have one of them <laughs> I mean there is a incentive scheme as such and, and a career progression and so on but it 's not it 's not a rewards department you 've got your ISAVE, safe okay where, where you can get your reductions and we 're not we 're not very good at rewarding perhaps as much as we ought to and that's why it was great wasn 't it to have those um, acknowledgements and honouring just before lunch, you know, to actually say, do you know what, these people have done 10 years' service, 15 years, 15 years' service. Isn't that that fantastic? And we need to see more of that um, because charities and the caring professions are not very good at that. They just serve, 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 die. Um, You know, so (laughs) we've got to sort of have that slight middle pace, haven't we? Okay, so just the next slide, if we can. What I'd like you to do, if you can is share some stories. Now, if there are no ups and downs in your life, it means that you are dead, okay? So um, this is just an ECG to illustrate that point. But you are under no obligation to share anything. Um, but what I would like you to do is get into slightly bigger groups, maybe, of five or six or something like that. And if if one person in each group wants to share a time when perhaps they went through a more difficult patch during their life and perhaps had to make some adjustments and what helped them come, come through that, or are they still in the middle of it? You can be as open as you want to, but if nothing's going on, you can just talk about whether you're going to come to the spit roast later on tonight. So just a few minutes just to maybe share a story in slightly bigger groups, if we can. Just one person. Fantastic. Thank you so much to to those who shared. I know that's brave, and I'm not, going to, again, not going to ask for any, any feedback for that. But hopefully it was helpful to hear some stories, maybe get some ideas and that sort of thing. Um, what I want to do, if we just pop the next slide up, is just get practical for the next half of it. I'm having a lot of focus on um, Fight Club today, which, which is not a, not a film I watch every week. Um, but there is a, do you know that every single scene in the movie Fight Club is crafted to illustrate a particular Freudian principle? So initially when they go down into the basement, it's the dark unconscious with the puddle that re- represents the id which is suppressed, and then by the end of the film, the basement is where the explosives are made, and it's the organizing place for mayhem, which is what happens in psychosis when the id takes over and causes chaos. And that's why it's called Project Mayhem, because it's, the id is now in charge. Anyway, different story. There's lots and lots and lots to learn about Fight Club. I once watched it with a psychoanalyst. Don't make that mistake. <laughs> But what we are going to do is we're all going to line up in two lines and we're going to give each other massive hugs like this. And we're going to practice self-care for the rest of the session. We'll have boys on this side and girls on this side. And no, okay, all right. (laughs) Some of you thought that I was being serious, didn't you? We're... We're not going to do that. And there's two reasons for that. First of all, group hugs are for the Australian football field. And the second thing is that's not really self-care, is it? That, 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 that's a bit of Hollywood that, that sort of snuck in. And again, the um, psychoanalytical principle being illustrated here is regression to an infantile and oral stage of development. And we don't want to do that. We want to be at a higher stage of development, don't we? So, so what we are going to do is have a little bit of a think about self-care. And just to illustrate that, let's think about our environment. Um, this next picture I've put up, is a, it's, it's a CD cover by a band called 100 Hours, and they used to be the YWAM house band um, a couple of years ago, uh, a couple of decades ago, rather, when I was youngster and used to go to those festivals and that sort of thing. It was often 100 Hours who were playing at those festivals, and th- there's an equation on the front, and this was a formula that was invented by a guy called Wynne Fountain, who's a- an Auckland businessman, actually. Um, even though it's, a, it's, a, well, it's an international ban, but they're, they're based in, in the UK. Um, but it goes something like this. In a week, you've got 168 hours, if my maths is correct. If you sleep for eight hours, seven days a week, okay, that's seven times eight, that's 56 hours. So take that away, and that gives you 112 hours left in your week. If you do basic activity, what's your bare minimum kind of thing? Forget washing, that's a luxury. Right, your basic, you've got to eat three times a day. That, that, that's your basic. So half an hour, three times a day, so 21 times a week. That's 10 and a half hours. And then the other basic human activity, of course, is to go to church for an hour and a half on a Sunday morning. And if you add those up, it conveniently comes to 100. And the idea here is that you've got 100 hours how are you going to eat yours? If that makes sense, and you may think, okay, well, I've got forty hours for for work and five hours for commuting, and you know, think, hang on, that's fifty hours left. Didn't know I had fifty spare hours in the week. All those soap operas I watched, goodness me, where did it all go? And it's actually quite interesting to do a sort of hundred hours grid. Just get yourself a sort of ten by ten grid and just just work out roughly what you do in your hundred hours each week. And it's just an interesting exercise because you may find that you can fill all the hours. And I, I would say if you actually know what you do for 100 hours a week, you're probably approaching burnout. Um, I think we shouldn't aim to plan. And there are some perfectionists out there, they need to buy the book, who will fill every hour of the day with a planned activity. And actually, I would have thought if, if you can fill... 70 hours, that's probably about right. So, you've got a job, a commute, some stuff with the family, maybe a hobby, and um, something else that pops into like a book group or something like that. You know, if, if you then the rest of it is free time and it should be free time for using unstructured stuff, for, for catching up, to allow some flexibility, some give and some take. So, it's quite, it's quite interesting doing a sort of 100 hour activity and seeing where you come out. What we are going to do is um, do a bit of self care. Just on the next slide, though, I've put some of my friends up because these are pigs. Very happy. Um, they don't know what's coming to them, but there we go. <laughs> you hear the joke about the um, chicken and the pig, and they're in this farmyard, and um, this double-decker bus rolls past the farmyard, and on, on the advert on the side of the bus is this plate, this amazing fried breakfast. And the, 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 the bus goes by, and the two of them look at each other, and they go, oh, it's, not, it's not absolutely delicious. Absolutely delicious. And the the chicken said, we've made that. We helped contribute that. And the pig turns to him and says, your contribution, I'm commitment. (laughs) So these pigs are still happy. These pigs are still happy in their state. And they are as happy as a pig in the proverbial. So let's think about how we can do that. And what I'd like you to do, just jot this down on your pads. because We're going to put it on the plan later. Oh, no, you can you put, put it on the plan if you want to. You can start writing on the plan I've handed out. This is your personal resilience plan. Have a think about some things you're going to do each day. Okay? Some things you're going to do each day, some things you're going to do each month or each week. So, for example, it could be going to church or it could be going for a hike in the countryside once a month, something like that. You know, it doesn't have to be weekly or monthly. What are the things you're going to do every day? self-care? What are the things you're going to do regularly or semi-regularly? And what are the things that you're going to do annually? Obviously, every year I go on a six-day silent retreat as an Abbey knot. Um, But, you know, some people will have some sort of annual activity. I probably ought to, shouldn't I? But what are you going to do annually, weekly, monthly and daily? And just start jotting some things in there. I'll put three times three minutes, but we'll, we'll see how we go. Have a think. Be creative. Do this in small groups as well. Start off by yourself. Once you've jotted a few things down, share with the people next to you. Okay. If you could pop the next slide up for me, Phil, as well, that would be great. So I'm going to give you a bit more time later to finish off the bottom half of it, or you can finish that off another time. But... This slide, I, I asked the junior doctors where I work what they thought was good for this. Uh, and actually, some of these slides were put together by my registrar, Laura, because she she did this as one of her um, presentations. And then I sort of nicked a few slides and extended it a bit. So, so thanks to Laura. But th- this is what they were saying. Plan meal breaks and go out. Now, this is an inpatient unit for our, where I work. So what that, that means is that they actually went off the unit to the main hospital canteen or a local cafe or just went and talked to the ducks or something like that. So have your meal break and go out. Physical activity, some of them have got these stepometers or your smartphone might do it for you. Um, see your difficult or tricky clients first. Don't procrastinate. If you know you've got a difficult person to see, do it first thing. Wake them up if need be. Get it over and done with. That's what I sometimes do, um, but I mean, you know, and your week may not work like that. It might be too time, but timetable it earlier in the week. Don't timetable the person who you know is going to be difficult on a, on, a, on a Friday. Wind down with something productive or enjoyable, preferably not Pinot Noir. Connect with peers and colleagues and attend meetings. I want to let you into a secret: your schools are all still standing, and none of them are burned down while you've come away to this conference. So. It's okay to take time out to come away to meetings, to invest in what you call those second quadrant activities, important but non-urgent, yeah? So um, it's important to actually get to stuff and not just be consumed with the busyness of work. Go and have that meeting with the head teacher, the year head. Don't don't cancel meetings all the time. Laughter and fun are allowed. Chocolate in particular is allowed, I think. Um, Always have a treat in your desk that you can nibble or something, whatever it is. Avoid taking work home. The commute has some value. Now, the next slide, I just put a picture up of the um, botanic gardens there. I think they're botanic gardens in Melbourne. Anyway, that's what Google tells me. Um, never having, I went to well, I went to them 26 years ago, didn't I? Like everything else in Melbourne. Uh, I, did actually, I did actually go to them, and they still look as nice. And I, I used to walk home across the meadows in Edinburgh, so occasionally I'd walk home or cycle home, and I'd go across the meadows, and it'd be like, right, okay, work's finished. It's home now while I cycle up the last hill to get home. These are some of my sort of tips, longer-term tips. So um, in terms of over, over, over sort of 10 years or so of being a consultant, how I've managed to stay sane during that time. Um, have your finger in another pie or two is quite important. I think if you're doing full-time school chaplaincy, it's quite difficult to, to do full-time. It doesn't particularly matter what it is. It, it could be you're part-time and you do pottery for a day a week or something like that it could be that you you are in the school but you're 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 coaching the football team or something like that you know have something else because the idea basically is when one part of your life's going well have another part of your life that you can enjoy Uh, so when one's going badly have a part that you can enjoy and vice versa so I've done quite a lot of education and teaching over the years and to do with electronic and digital health and I can sort of mix and match so one's stressful and no one's doing the right policies in e-health and they all Luddites and they can't turn the computer on and that's okay because I'm enjoying the clinical work and then vice versa when that's going well I can produce a pretty graph from the um, computer so it keeps me happy share the pain swap difficult clients okay if you've got someone difficult if, if you can if there's another chaplain swap them or swap them between the chaplain and the psychologist okay you see him for a bit I'll see him for a bit. And I'm, I'm just being very matter of fact about this and treating clients as objects for a little bit. So forgive me for doing that. But it's OK to do that in order to stay sane. I would do this sometimes with GPs. GPs had very, very difficult patients. And I'd say, I'll see him in clinic for a bit. Or actually, I've seen him in clinic for ages. Can you see them for a bit? And we'd, we'd swap some of the more difficult people. Have cheeky days off and date your spouse. That's very important. Um, just random days. Take a random Tuesday off on leave and just do nothing. Not get out of bed. Take the kids to school, go back to bed. All kinds of things are possible. Okay, so just have random cheeky days off. Have two weeks holiday, not one. Um, obviously, you know, a week's vacation's good, a week's holiday, but two-week holiday it's good. Three weeks, you're getting bored. I'm getting bored and itchy feet by that point, certainly, anyway. But two weeks holiday is quite good, I find. Work flexible hours in conjunction with colleagues. Now, I've never done this personally, because I've always wanted to be there for the kids going to school and for bath time and that kind of stuff. But I may do it at some point. I might work long hours and do four days a week. Um, might flexi. The job I'm going back to in Edinburgh, my colleague works four days a week from eight to, eight to half five, and then she doesn't come in on Friday. She just answers the phone if she has to, you know. So find different ways to do it. Realise it's not all about you and develop your spirituality. Hopefully, you're doing that already. Um, learn it's not all about you and drop some balls. Okay, it's it's definitely very therapeutic to drop balls sometimes. The time it makes you realise that it's not all about you. The world carried on revolving in its axis. No one died. Okay, so I think it's it's okay to drop balls. Even better, drop balls therapeutically and think what can I learn from this about myself. And mix it up, it's not just one job for life. So you might do this for a few years. I'd rather you did chaplaincy for a few years, went off and did something else for a couple of years and then came back to it than did it for 10 years, had a nervous breakdown and then never came back to it ever again. Yeah? So mix it up, it's all right to mix things up. You know, most people will have three jobs during their adult life. It's not that. I was a tailor and my father was a tailor and my father's father was a tailor before me and, you know, it's handed down in families. We can mix it up, move around. How many of you were chaplains from age 18 or 21? None of you. Okay, proves my point. Mix it up. But just because you're a chaplain now doesn't mean you have to be one forever until you retire. Sorry. (laughs) 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 Give plenty of warning for any (laughs) career changes. Okay, I'm going to skip over this bit just a little bit. Jump forward to the... There's a slide with a big cross on it. Just go forward a few slides if you can, Phil. Talk, I'm going to talk a bit about the midlife crisis. Oh, Phil? Yeah. Sorry, we've got it there. Talk about, a bit about the midlife crisis because um, there's this idea, isn't there, that the midlife crisis is just buying a motorbike and that's what you do and you, you, you get a motorbike and, and off you go. And No, not that one. The one before that. No? That one. That one, there we go. We all need to do something in midlife. I think this is one of my sort of pet theories. I'm not quite sure how, how true this is, but maybe it's because I'm just feeling this. So I thought I'd tell you a little bit about why I came to New Zealand and why I'm going home again. And it, it wasn't a midlife crisis. It wasn't the equivalent of buying a motorbike. Because what that is, it's a big change, but it's also a bad change. So, you know, buying a motorbike and then falling off it it's a really, really, really silly thing to do. Or buying a motorbike and just going away the whole time and avoiding home, you know. Not good midlife crises to have. What is perhaps a better one is a big thing and a good thing, which is a move, as long as you do the move for the right reasons. And we, we did the move coming to New Zealand for a whole bunch of reasons too. um Just to sort of, we had spent time overseas when I was young with, with my folks and my wife as well. And we wanted to have that experience. And we went into it with open eyes. And most importantly, we left a good thing in Edinburgh that we're actually really, really enjoying Edinburgh. We just thought, if we don't do it now, we're never going to do this for another 20 years until we're sort of retired or whatever it is. And also, when we came here, we had the normal ups and downs of arriving here. You know, I remember getting off the plane and driving right through the back streets of Auckland. The taxi took us and we ended up in this tired motel and it was raining and I thought, what have I done to my family? I want to go home again, you know. So we've had all the usual sort of immigrant up and downs. But actually, at the moment, we're actually really enjoying New Zealand. We could stay another year. We could stay another two years if we want to. But I think we decided it's not 20 years. So given we've made the decision, we want to, want to go back home. So, you know, we're, we're leaving a good thing as well. So don't do that. Don't do your small changes that are bad. Don't get stuck in midlife cruise midlife cruise or monotony. Try and sort of break it up. Do, do something. I think, you know, don't look back at the age of 60 and think, oh, you know, well, I didn't do anything with my adult life. Or I just did exactly the same thing all the way through. Um, so how do you mix it up? You know, can you do good changes that are small? Can you have this sort of melody in your life? And that, that's thinking about the M's, but it's just this sort of, I have a daily rhythm, I have a weekly rhythm, I have a monthly rhythm, I have an annual rhythm, I've got a creative and varied life. These are some of the things that are associated with with, with good self-care. I and mean, just jump on two slides if we can, Chris. Um, some of you might recognize this if you've studied some psychology or therapy. These are Erickson's stages for life. Um, the first five sort of happened before the age of 18, and they're, they're not a million miles away from some of the sort of Freudian or um, Piagetian stages of child development you probably know about. Um, but the ones I want to sort of pick up there are about early adulthood and late adulthood, so six and seven. Early adulthood, Erickson was about Intimacy versus isolation. Am I going to find my partner, or am I going to be alone? And interestingly enough, that is not negotiated by finding a partner, because um, you can be unhappy in marriage. It's negotiated by finding yourself and being able to be be able to be intimate and be able to be alone, and then choosing. You know, you you should be happy with your singleness before you get married. Should be another way to, to to phrase that, if that makes sense from from marriage courses and so on. And then he moves on to this one here, generativity versus stagnation. What am I gonna do in the second half of my adult life? Am I going to start a new business completely or am I going to try and leave a legacy? And that's what he means by generativity. He means begin to leave a legacy, begin to mentor, begin to pass on, begin to encourage, begin to do yourself out of a job, if you want a better description, or stagnation. And the problem with that stage is that if you don't negotiate that right, you come to the last stage. And the last stage is called ego integrity versus despair. So you either get to your retirement years and you think, I fought the good fight. I'm happy with my life. I've contributed my bit. I haven't changed the world and won a Nobel Prize, but I've I've contributed. That's okay. Or do you look back on my life and think, I've made a right mess of that, and do you know what? It's too late to change it. And that's the despair, that is the depression of old age, that it's too late. To go back, you're never going to be young again. You're never going to have that energy again. So, so most of us are sort of rough. I've put a fairly broad arrow there to cover the um, excellent age range of the audience. But but we're sort of there, aren't we? Thinking about this sort of midlife crisis, second half of of adult life. And the, the problem is, if we don't get it right, what's next? The only things that are left are retirement and death. So actually, thinking about it's true. If you're forty, like me, what you know? I've had kids. I've got married. Bought a house. What's next? Retirement, death. Oh yes, that's true. Actually, yeah, they're being the ski generation. So yeah, but but you know that, this idea that actually if we begin to think about this, I'm I'm putting some of these things out here, like you know the knife crisis, the Ericsson stages, perhaps to give you fresh ways of thinking about this. Self care is not about doing a little questionnaire and getting better at doing the little questionnaire, like we were saying at the start of the day. It's a, it's about thinking where am I in my life. I want to be a little bit reflective about this. I want to think about it. I want to make some practical changes. Help is available. So on the last slide there, I feel I ought to mention that the house resource. So there are chaplaincy and wellbeing support groups, and hopefully you know, you are part of, or are able to be part of one of those, and you can continue some of these discussions maybe in your, in your support group. And one of the things you might want to do is spend a little bit of time now finalizing the rest of your plan and thinking about what goes in that, and taking it to your next chaplaincy and well-being support group and discussing it and thinking, right, guys, keep me accountable for this. This is what I want to do. This is an area I'm lacking. These are the kinds of things that I want to do to be developing, developing personal resilience. So there's a few things left on here. My supportive and caring relationships are... That's quite a scary one to fill in. The ways I calm down and regain perspective are... My current health and fitness levels are. Okay? My long-term goals are. We're, not, you know, we're good at the spirit and the mind, aren't we? Not so good at the body. So spend so a few minutes just filling that in, and then we'll wrap it up and close. Okay. I'm not going to ask you to share that. I am going to ask you to do something with it. So when you get home... Don't put it in the circular filing cabinet on the floor with your other conference notes. Put it somewhere. Take it to your next support group. Share it. Discuss it. Develop it. Show it to your nearest and dearest and see if they agree with it. See if they can help you stay accountable with it. Just, I'd finish just by reading Psalm 23 because I think we're sort of closing up. I mean, you're going to be... Some staying for dinner but heading home. So someone will be heading home into the night. So let, let's do this. Psalm 23. This is the message version. God, my shepherd... I don't need a thing. You've bedded me down in lush meadows. You find me quiet pools to drink from. True to your words, you let me catch my breath and you send me in the right direction. Even when the way goes through Death Valley, I'm not afraid when you walk at my side. Your trusty shepherd's crook makes me feel secure. You serve me a six course dinner right in front of my enemies you revive my drooping head and my cup brims with blessing your beauty and love chase after me every day of my life I'm back home in the house of God for the rest of my life so can I say thank you so much for having me today and uh, my prayer is that you would travel safe have a restful day and be back for more fun tomorrow thank you so much